This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. everyone and welcome to Unspooled Top 3. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the spin-off podcast, or I mean just the special edition podcast, where we talk to amazing people about the three films that they would send into outer space. We have talked to directors, writers, actors, and today we are bringing back an unspooled favorite. You might remember him from Double Indemnity. He is one of the most acclaimed writers in comics, winning five Best Writer Eisner and Harvey Awards in the last 10 years. His best-selling work with Sean Phillips on Criminal, Incognito, Fatal, and Fade Out has been translated all around the world to great acclaim. He also uh, is known for creating one of the most famous uh, characters in comic books, The Winter Soldier, and his latest book, uh, Reckless, book three, which is a book I'm so enamored with. I love it so much. If you like classic detective stories, you will love this book. comes out October 20th. It's the third in the series. Amy, I'm so excited to bring back Ed to chat with him about what his top three films are. Welcome, Ed. So, Ed, people who may or may not be familiar with you, uh, you have this incredibly storied run as a graphic novelist, and you have written some amazing stories in the Batman universe. You've written some amazing stories in the Captain America uh, universe. Uh, But I will say what I've been loving in the in the last, what is it, maybe 10 years or whatever, you're these new books I'm talking about, Fatal, uh, Velvet, The Fade Out, Criminal, uh, Pulp, and Reckless. They are, they are just tour de force crime fiction. They are, they're the, the things that I look forward to, the things that I love. They feel like they are uh, written in many ways for me. I just love your characters. I love your style of writing. And I feel like we talked about this when you were on uh, a previous episode, in the Double Indemnity episode. Like, you actually have a, you know, have a giant background in in crime uh, fiction, but I wanted to talk about Reckless today because your new book is coming out, yeah, uh, and it's the third one in this series. So tell it, like, get us up to date for people who don't know about Reckless. Reckless is a thing I came up with uh, in the early days of the pandemic lockdown. The entire comics industry shut down; like the printers were shut. In fact, a couple of the printers went out of business, and it's a huge disaster now. Um, uh, but all the comic stores shut down. The, dis- the one distributor of comics was shut for three months. 
So there was this moment in time where I just thought, I don't know what comes after this. Like, will there be a comic book industry? And I was preparing to start like a monthly comic book that was going to launch that summer. And suddenly every idea looking at it, like I felt like the world was falling apart. We have this pandemic. We're all locked down. The industry is dying. It felt like. And I was like, what am I doing? And I like all these ideas for it. I just felt like they're all too dark. I don't want to write this. And I started going back to my bookshelves and reading like a bunch of old like Parker novels and uh, like uh, Lou Archer books. And uh, I bought like a complete set of the Travis McGee books, which I'd never read, but were my dad's favorites. And uh, and I just started sort of jumping into this sort of um what, what I would call like the pulp paperback hero genre. Like, yeah, though Parker is ostensibly not a hero, but I love him. So he's my hero. Um, but like, I remembered as a kid, like just you'd go to this, to the like pick and save or whatever, or Fed Mart, and they would have these walls of paperbacks and they would, you know, my dad wouldn't let me read any of them, like the executioner. And they would have like almost naked girls on the cover. Yes. And- this is my, <laughs> this is my, like, I remember having this experience where my grandparents brought me to a store like that, a pick and save. And they're like, you can pick any book. And I picked the book with what I thought was going to have some like nudity in the book. And, <laughs> uh, and I remember being kind of confused about what a blowjob was because it was being described. <laughs> and so I was explaining it to my grandparents. I'm like, what, what is, what do they mean is happening here? And they're like, give me that book. And what that book was like, what kind of job is this? <laughs> yeah. I, I think is, I think the name of the character was like Mac Bolin or Mac something Bolin, like that. Mac Bolin, the executioner. 631 um, novels for Mac yes. Bolin. 631. All, and not all written by one guy, though. <laughs> but there was this Yeah, but trend. that's more than the Babysitter's Club. That could wallpaper yeah. the whole house. <laughs> that's was, like insulation. Well, that's the that's the kind of thing that I loved about it, though, was like it just you'd look and you're like, wait, this is book 75 and here's book 44. And it, it was like as a comic collector kid, I would see these and then I would show them to my dad. And he's like, oh, those are for adults. And yeah. um, but I but I was just attracted to those lurid covers. And so my whole life, I've always loved just looking at the covers and reading about those books. And occasionally I'd get one and sneak one home and I'd be like, oh, these are kind of trashy. Right. Um, but. I found myself just kind of loving like the good versions of those like Pulp Hero kind of things and realizing like I mainly only have written about like the bad guys or people accused of crimes that, you know, I rarely have written good guy characters outside of like my Marvel and DC work. And even like the Winter Soldier, is he a good guy? Like, I don't know. Right. Um, But but I just suddenly felt like. I don't know what's happening in the comics industry, if there'll be a comics industry on the other side of this. I don't want to start a single issue comic thing that I need comic stores to exist for. But I want to keep, you know, Sean Phillips and I have been working together for almost 20 years just doing books nonstop. And I was like, we need to keep working or we're just going to lose our minds and we're going to get so far behind And so suddenly, like, all of these ideas for, like, my version or our version of a pulp paperback hero just sort of came out of me. Like, I had the idea, like, Ethan Reckless is our hero, and all the books so far, the first three all take place in the 1980s, over the span of the 1980s. And the first one opens in 1981. And he's a guy who operates out of an out of a uh, out of business abandoned movie theater. That's like his office, so and he it. spends all day. He's like a guy. We we find out he's a guy who has this weird history. It's very similar to mine. He was a Navy brat whose dad was in military intelligence, but he's older than me, so he can be an adult in the in the eighties when I was like a teenager. And um, and he was like a guy who was undercover for the FBI and, uh, you know, in the weather underground. Like there were all these undercover like hippies back then, which I knew about from doing research for another project. And I just and I just suddenly all these different ideas congealed into like, what would be my version of a pulp paperback hero? And I thought, well, he would operate out of a movie theater and not let anybody else come in. And he would watch movies all day and he would rarely take a case and he would go surfing all day and. He, maybe he would have some kind of brain damage or emotional inability to, you know, to connect with people. And so he's good at violence. And 
And so it all just kind of came together really quickly. And I just emailed Sean and I said, how about we start this series of graphic novels instead? Because regardless of what happens with, you know, this shutdown that we were in at the time, like we'll be able to somehow publish a graphic novel. We can put it on Kickstarter. We can sell it to a regular book publisher if image is somehow gone. And, and what turned out to happen was like after the three month shutdown, comic stores reopened, the week comic stores reopened, I believe uh, our our previous graphic novel Pulp came out and was like the biggest selling graphic novel of the year and won like a bunch of awards and is the best selling thing we ever did. So us deciding to switch to graphic novels was actually a really smart thing for us. But we had yeah. no idea at the time because it was just like I just wanted to keep moving forward and doing something that I felt was just some kind of pulpy fun. You know, like I thought it would be easy. And of course, it's not easy. <laughs> but it, it appears easy in the sense that I feel like three books have come out in two years and they are less big. Than yeah, it's, it's yeah, less 10 than months. That. 10 months we've wow. come out. The first one is 1981. The second one is 1985. And the third one takes place in 1988. And that one is Destroy All Monsters, it's called. And, and it focuses a lot on... Um, a lot on the relationship between Ethan and his sort of sidekick character, Anna, who's his projectionist yeah. slash assistant. Like, I, I really love her as a character. And I realized they've been friends at this point for 12 years in, this, in the history of the book. I wanted to spend a lot more time on, like, what their relationship was about and how... Because a lot of my best friends in real life, through my whole life, have been women and, and you know, in not a sexual way. Um, just like my best friends in high school were girls and, you know, my best friend right now is, is my friend Hallie. Um, my wife is my other best friend, you know, I mean, I like you, Paul, but I know. Yeah. Look, I'll take it. Still, yeah. But, <laughs> I can't um, hold I'm a girl. Hi. 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 You're on the list. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I think what it's so fun about these books is they hearken back to what we were talking about, like this. Like if you grew up, I think I grew up the same exact way. I devoured all the James Bond books when yeah. I was a kid. There was there was an element, and maybe it still is like this, but John McDonald, the even the Fletch books, yeah. they were like oh, yeah. you would go to the bookstore and you would read these books and they would be fun and not disposable, but they were like watching a great Netflix show. You're like, Oh, I can't yeah. wait for the next one. And here yeah. it was. And 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 I feel like I'm missing out on that. And these books, you know, all your books have this energy that's so unique to them but i love these books so much so i'm excited that we'll get to meet her a little bit more in this yeah and i mean but are you thinking at all of like have people been like oh i will i can be ethan i want to be ethan i want to i want to make this into a movie i want to make this into a tv show there's been some there's been definitely some interest people worry about anything that's a period piece i think though i don't think the 80s feels like a real period piece i what i what i love about doing the period piece stuff is I get to sort of mine my own youth, but from mm -hmm. the perspective of today, and a lot of it is written from the sort of environmental perspective of like looking back at all these things that have been in the news since the seventies that we've all just completely ignored until the planet is on fire. It's right. like you could find articles back in the seventies talking about global warming, you know, and scientists would be saying, Oh, this is a thing we really need to start dealing with 45 years ago. But you know, now we're like now Seattle's like 128 degrees, you know, so it's like, oh, yeah. So I get to sort of talk about that and talk about like like when I was a kid, we used to come up to L.A. all the time uh, from San Diego to go see like punk shows and stuff. And so, yeah, I get to talk about like this sort of forgotten L.A. in some ways. Like I work, I, I try to work on that stuff a lot. Um, and uh, it's it's just really interesting. I kind of. I, I, you know, like you said, like there was a disposable nature to that kind of serialized character where you're just coming back to see what this person gets into next. I really wanted to lean into that disposable nature. And I found instead that I was creating something where I could put more of my own sort of personal experiences and thoughts into this character. Like a lot of his history is my history, which is weird, but also I could do sort of like what they did in Chinatown, where you look back at like a crime that was totally public when it was happening that has affected everything since then. There was this whole thing that never gets talked about anymore. There was this corridor where they tore down all the, where they were going to tear down all these houses. And then there were all these lawsuits to prevent people from tearing them down because they didn't want the freeway to run through. 
So for a decade and a half, I think, there was just this like 15 or 20 mile period of just like empty houses. And that was where a huge amount of the crime in L.A. congregated. And it's partly responsible for turning like South L.A. into what South L.A. became. And it's just completely overlooked. We all talk about like the CIA, Iran-Contra, crack, all of that stuff. But we never talk about this highway going through that actually affected all of this stuff. And um, like, I really love that aspect of doing the period piece stuff. So I, right. I really hope that, you know, that we've had some, we've had some serious interest from, you know, some big producers and stuff. And uh, so I hope we'll, we'll get somebody. I, I would actually love for Sebastian Stan to play Reckless. Just oh, I love that, I yeah. Think I think he's perfect for it. And also it would be just amazing because he's the Winter Soldier. <laughs> I, I love that you would keep in the family. I have two questions for you because then we have to get to the business of some movies oh, yeah. and some good movie talk. But who would be, and this is a conversation that Amy and I have a lot, uh, who would be your perfect Jack Reacher? Do you read Jack Reacher? Do you have a oh. thought on this? Uh, yeah, I am a Reacher fanatic. I mean, if anything, yeah. uh, Reckless is sort of my version of that Reacher. I actually tried very hard to get the job to write the second Jack Reacher movie. I went through. Oh, I wow. think I I made it through this to the second round of interviews. I never got to the <laughs> Tom Tom Cruise interview or anything. It would have been so much better if you had written it. I know. I, I mean, I can't say that that's a, that for sure at all. Talented people worked on those movies, and they are not perfect. Um, I am a, you know, I'm a Reacher fan. Uh, who would be my perfect Jack Reacher? Amy has a choice and I want to see, but I want to oh. hear yours before we reveal Amy's choice. But oh. yeah, like I, I want you to go in blind. He's the Witcher now, but he would have been perfect. Ooh, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill would have been a perfect oh. Jack Reacher. I really like that. The, but he's also the perfect Witcher where you realize yeah. like, oh, he brought out his inner Clint Eastwood and I wouldn't want to mess up the 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 Witcher. I, I okay. think the guy that they got for the Amazon show from Titans, like mm -hmm. he he looks the part. I, I we'll see if he can actually pull it off. Um, he looks young to me. I, but. That's kind of what I feel like too. I mean, Amy, do you want to reveal your oh, your pick? I mean, I feel like there's really only one person for the job, and that's Michael Shannon. <gasps> mm. Oh, Ooh, what? I like no, it. I like no, it. No, yeah, all right. no, no, I, no. I mean, the only time we've seen Michael Shannon be like buff, he's scary all the time. Like Michael Shannon could pull mm -hmm. off the attitude and everything. But Michael Shannon's like not that he's got to be like late 40s or something. He's not. He doesn't want to spend four hours in the gym every day to try to become Jack Reacher. Oh, I don't think Jack has to be that big. I think he just knows how he to He has kill. to beat up I mean, an entire... No. But he has to be able to... <laughs> Jackie Chan used green to do that. Berets. Jackie yes, Chan could beat up ripper. 80 green berets. He's, he's got to be <laughs> he could do throat ripping and oh, no, taking no, no, no. bullets to the chest and his muscles are so big that the bullet doesn't go through. Come on, that's, just that's a scene impossible. in the book. <laughs> no human could match that description. No, the thing with Jack Reacher... Is that he has to be unnervingly, unnerving and giant. And I don't know. I've, I've had this image in met, my head ever I've since I actually saw. Is he tall? He is tall. And okay. more than that, he's big in unexpected ways. Like, this is weird. But the image I always get is like, I had to go to a panel that he was on actually about Superman uh, when he was General Zod. <laughs> okay, and it, I, I was laughing because like, you know, it was like everybody in the cast and crew like lined up on this conference table and... They were all normal humans. And then Michael Shannon's head, just his head is like twice as big as everybody else. Just gigantic, just looming in a way where you're like, his jaws are massive. Well, his, his head hands is the only massive. part of him that's actually in that movie. So like everything <laughs> else in that movie it's is true. There's like a green screen costume that he was wearing. But you just realize <laughs> he has a sense of scale that is unmatched in human earth. How Plus, hilarious supposed though to be blondish. we picked the, we each picked a character from the Superman. Right? I totally forget that Henry Cavill is What I'm is saying Superman. is like yeah. he looks so much bigger <laughs> even than Cavill. <laughs> you, pick, uh, you pick Michael Shannon, I pick Henry Cavill. That's amazing. Who did Paul, <laughs> who's Paul's choice? You know, I'm kind of, uh, I don't I don't have a horse in this race, but I would say the, the height is the issue for me. I can't figure out the tallness of the body. Like, you're right, that's... Um, He's supposed to be like six four or something yeah i mean there's a part of me that Which would funny, say like my dad was like one of the heads of naval intelligence and was six four but he was never buff 
he could never beat up a team of <laughs> of like green. I mean, Michael Rays. Shannon six three. We're not far I mean, off here. I okay. I think I would. I like. There's a part of me that would be like, I like Tom Hardy. Uh, but Ooh. I feel like he, you know, he's like, a, he's got a good intensity to him. And I feel like you've seen him beefed up and he but has he's that, a little like, short, isn't he's he? short. Isn't I he know pretty? he's short. I don't think Jack Reacher should be that pretty. Yeah. Tom Hardy mm. doesn't look like an investigator to me. He doesn't have that sort of, he looks more like a brute, like a, like a, I will kick your ass kind of guy. Like, right. You wouldn't want to be the asshole who drunkenly wanders up to Tom Hardy at a bar and is being too familiar about him being a star and trying to like, he right. may kick your ass. The only thing I would like to quickly say is uh, I've never been more disappointed and more excited in, cause I love this genre of the investigator and everything like this. Uh, I've never been more disappointed in a movie than Spencer for Hire in a time where I've watched so many movies during the quarantine and mm-hmm. everyone was kind of scratching an itch that I wanted. And I was like, yeah. this is great. That movie sucked. And I feel like we need, we have not talked about it. I think we have not been able to dive into it. It's such a beautiful franchise sitting there and for it to be just so half-assed, not funny, not interesting. It's like, it was just sitting weirdly in the middle. I, I don't know why it was so not good. It was I, such a bummer. That 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 one bummed me out a bit too, but I'm going to be a little bit nicer because I don't want Mark Wahlberg to show up at my house. No, I know. <laughs> I, look, Mark Wahlberg can do it. I just, I, I feel like there are forces no, against him that, that made yeah, it, was it not a weirdly, right. It was a weirdly, it was a weird whiff. Like it should yes. have been, it should have been a really fun movie. Like that team should have been able to, you know, and I don't Everybody. know, I don't know why it, you know, I mean, come on, you, you you work in the industry. It's almost it's nearly impossible to make a movie that's not good. Well, you know, I mean, it's, look. it's impossible. It's almost impossible to make one that's good, but it's just as hard to make one that turns out not to be. And you don't I know. Think, no, you know? I, I think you're right. I think the thing that I always wrestle with is when you have so many books to pull from and yeah. so much source material. It is amazing that sometimes the weirdest ones are the ones that we focus on. Like, let's not follow the book why let's not yeah. go against. let's go against what people like about this and create our <laughs> own thing i hate that but uh I, but anyway that, that always is to me that just says like someone took a job because they were excited about it but they really want to do their own thing instead and i've right. had that happen to so many adaptations of my own stuff that don't end up getting made and i'm like did you not read or like the nope. book like why are we you? just want the ip we want yeah. that name want now name. i mean i think the problem with spencer for hire is that they just didn't make it boston enough Ah. That's completely a joke. That is completely ah. a joke. I have never seen a movie that was more desperate to it's, be Boston. It needed, it, it, Don, it needed Donnie Wahlberg and Ben uh, <laughs> Affleck directing. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Now, before we get into your right. top three, we have some unfinished business because you and I were chatting and I was telling you that we had just done an episode on Inception and we're talking about the reception to Inception. And you said, oh my gosh, I have an amazing theory about Inception. And I feel like my theory is right. And I said, stop, don't tell it to me. I wanted you to tell uh, me and Amy on the air what your theory on Inception is because you can reveal anything you want, but you feel like you are the closest to the truth. 
I, uh, of the series. I, I, you know, I mean, it's up to Christopher Nolan to to not reveal that I'm correct. Um, <laughs> but I, I do feel like, and I, I have said this many times, uh, I have a lot of friends who I've argued with about this theory. Some of them saying even, then that ruins the movie. Then, then I don't even care. You know, like, I right. will fight people about this theory because I think, I think that movie is, for one thing, I love, by the way, how much thought you you guys put into it looking back at it like 11 years later, like, um, and both appreciated. I thought I felt like Amy appreciated it a lot more than she did originally, maybe. Yeah. Though I think still, that's right. Yeah. So still having a lot of problems with it that I saw people pointing out at the time. I would be curious what it's like Rotten Tomatoes score is. It's probably really high. But I always felt like it was a little bit misunderstood because... Just like I feel like Nolan is in general a little bit misunderstood. Um, a lot of people think his movies, and Amy is one of them, think his movies are basically cold and calculating and have no emotional center in them. Like, I love movies that are that have nothing but emotional center, and I could give a shit sure. about the plot. Um, usually, I think Nolan's movies are intensely emotional. <laughs> and, really? and I do. And I do not think it's understood completely. I mean, The Prestige is a heartbreaking movie. Memento is is a heartbreaking movie that is also very, very clever and I think probably still his best movie. I don't know. But Inception, to me, is the culmination of his own obsession. And everything he's made since, obse- since, since Inception is like, I feel like he, he hit this peak of like, okay, I've explored this theme and this theme, the theme is a main character who is terrified about what their life would be without their wife. And I do not know oh. Christopher Nolan. I've met Christopher Nolan once. We had a really great interaction once at a, at a panel that was really where I got a laugh out of him. And that was like the highlight of my oh year. My God. I, think. Yeah, I don't think was, I've ever heard him laugh. No, it was great. It was it was one of my finest moments. And is I, it like it a was, like a Barrett? Like, ho, ho, ho. Is it like a British? No, it, was a, it was a quiet. Is like, it? I mean, he was on stage, so I was in the audience, and and uh, I said something, and someone yelled out spoilers, and I said that movie came out ten years ago, and someone said, "What about Blu-ray sales?" And I said, "Oh, like he needs the money," and he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think his theme his theme is the the fear of the loss of this person that is everything to the main character, and. I mean, look at Christopher Nolan's life. I think he got married in film school. His wife produces all of his movies. Everybody I know who knows either of them just says she's the greatest person they've ever met. Everybody loves her. I believe what Inception is really about, and this gets to the crazy Kubrickness of how Christopher Nolan views art and films. And, you know, I'm projecting this onto it, obviously. Like, as Paul and you said, the great thing about this movie is you can project your own interpretations onto it. I believe yeah. there is no layer of inception that is not a dream. I believe the entire movie is communicating but from Christopher Nolan to the audience. It is, it is a dream that a man is having the night before he has to tell his children that their mother died. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay, go There on, is go on, no go layer on. in that movie that is not a dream. The one layer wow. that's supposed to be reality, right? It's all tricking you not to think this, right? The thing with the spinning top at the end, so you're like, is he yeah. back in the world or is he in a dream? None of that matters. The, the, non, the reality level oh. of that movie has more shit that happens to you in a dream than any of the dream levels do, Right. He's trying to hide right. from the cops and suddenly, oh, I'm the only white person in here and they're going to spot me immediately. He's trying to like get away, but the alley right. gets smaller, like everything that happens in the reality part of it. And you came close to pointing this out, Amy. Everything that happens in the reality level is is something that would happen to you in a dream. You're thinking about a person and they appear like he's trying to get away and the guy pulls up with the car like every single layer of that movie is another layer of a dream. And here is the key to it. So, right. So they're falling backwards in the top layer, right? And each layer yeah. that they go into is affected by the previous layer, but moves in slower time. This is what we're told. All of that is fucking horseshit. It's all a dream. 
when they're falling backwards, the next layer of the dream suddenly goes into uh, they're in outer what zero gravity, right? That's why they right. have that amazing zero gravity fight yeah. scene, which it's all just beautiful, right? So how come the layer below that, they're fucking skiing and having a James Bond movie? There is gravity there. Right, right. There okay. is no gravity when they're falling. They're, but that when they're floating in zero G, they're in a James Bond movie in the next layer down. Like, come on. No, that's a dream, too. There's no dream logic that connects those two. The whole movie ah. is a dream. Every single thing. Because when you're having a dream, and you talked about this, like Paul has serial dreams, it sounds like. You have yeah. dreams more like me where one thing kind of moves to the next. And I have mm. recurring dreams, actually, um, which is sort of tragic because a lot of them are about like being sent to prison and stuff. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so, Did you show up in a dream prison? You're like, Oh, I know this place so well. Yeah. Now. It's that, or I'm being chased by the cops and I'm like, I can't, it's like those frustration dreams where you're trying to call the one person wow. to, to like come pick you up and you keep hitting the wrong number. Um, yes. Yes. All that. Wait, do you have a guilty subconscious? Okay. I have a, of course I do. I was a teenage, <laughs> I was a teenage drug addict in general. This came up during our last podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I never completely can escape the guilt of things that I feel bad about. Um, but so I believe that that whole movie is a work of art that is someone expressing their love for their wife and someone expressing. I love the this. worst thing that could possibly happen is having to wake up and tell your children that their mother is gone, because what would your life ever be after that? And I, I think to me, it's the most moving thing. He's and making. so him going out to see the kids is basically him. Yeah, it doesn't matter that the confidence, the right? Kids yeah. or that their shoes right. are different or any of that. All that bullshit is to get you to start asking a million questions about what's dream, what's not dream. But I believe that the movie is itself, because also, like other people pointed out, there were articles that came out at the time. The heist crew is exactly like putting together a film crew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're scouting a heist. It's just like scouting a location. Everybody has their different jobs. Um, there's a lot of exposition. Well, when you're hiring someone for a thing, you have to explain like how this works. Um, all of that stuff is great. A filmmaker like him, of course, every facet of every character is just another piece of him in his dream. So, of course, it's a film crew. Right. Inception is brilliant because it's like reading a novel or something where you can walk out of that and argue about what the movie was. That's what I love about, about it, too. So it is yeah. a singular experience on a, on a lot of levels. I mean, what I find I romantic about that is the idea of a man and his wife making a, a whole love letter to her. And maybe she knows, maybe she doesn't. Yeah, maybe she I doesn't mean, even and, know. And Until him she's also, hearing this podcast right now. Right. right that's it. <laughs> but him also being such an intensely private person because he yeah. very much gives off that radar, yeah, that porcupine yeah, yeah. radar, that he can't put anything in this relationship that will make it obvious to people. So he can't actually have a human seeming connection between, I believe, Dom Cobb and Mal well, because he doesn't the, want to put any like details yeah. away. Like, but which well, is why I struggle with that movie because like that. Her like when she's going to kill herself because she thinks she's still in the dream. She, they, she, they check into a room, but when he looks out the window, she's like at the building across the street. She's not on the ledge right outside the window. She is oh, on the, yeah. she's across from him. They're looking at each other. You're all of right. this is dream. All of this is a dream. There is no layer of inception that is reality. All oh, wait, of it is that a dream. Scene. Yeah. That's actually really key. You're right. How do I never think about that? How does she get from one ledge to the other? Does she Does shimmy she on the telephone wire? Like, like, like Yeah. You're is, right. That is makes it a cul-de-sac no building? Sense. Like, is this like, a crazy thought? Is Elliot Page a younger version of his wife? Or like some sort of like she's helping him address like sh the younger versions also there to help him get through it? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's who is anybody in a dream. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. Like they're they're either like I dream about people who really exist sometimes, but then suddenly I'm them and I'm doing something. So I don't think about that stuff too much. Yeah. I just noticed I noticed by the second viewing that there was no level that wasn't a dream, that the reality level felt more dreamlike than the next level down. Actually, I, and then the third level is just a fucking James Bond movie. And obviously, Chris Nolan wanted to make a James Bond movie. 
Well, I think that there's, I think what you're, I, I mean, I love what you're saying, which is like the movie is so personal that, uh, that it's literally based on his life. But I also just like the idea too. And Amy talking about this with you, like you say it lacks emotion. I would say that a lot of dreams, you don't wake up like full of emotion, but a lot of times full of anxiety. And there's a lot of those issues as well. So I think that that's Mm -hmm. what it's kind of playing on too, emotionally on that level. This is a great theory that I love. It kind of took my breath away. I'm glad I waited to hear it (laughs) live. Uh, I feel like Amy, you're, you're also uh, at least considering this theory. I am considering it very strongly because then it helps me grapple with the fact that I think he can't give us almost anything about the actual relationship that we don't actually see them ever have any conversations. You know, we really don't see like Mal or Dom ever talk. Yeah. Yeah. So we have no sense of what draws them Those together. Those are not real but people. It, yeah. It and makes Cobb sense in the way of after the guy from his first yeah. movie. You know, Dom Cobb, Cobb, was, oh, wow. Cobb was there the guy go. in his first movie too, who was the thief who, who turned out to be the bad guy at the end. Oh, Whoa, spoilers so like, for 25 years ago. All right, so now we've gotten two giant things out of the way. We've talked about <laughs> the most important things about the show, which is who would be the greatest Jack creature? What's the theory behind Inception? Um, and now we get to your top three. Ed, we uh, love having you on the show, and I feel like you have such a great uh, you know, knowledge of film that we thought it would be really interesting to hear the three films that you would put up to be saved. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, get, yeah, and what really strikes me, like especially after the conversation that we've had, is that each of these films, they are romance. Yeah. Um, and they do really each evoke like a specific distinct era in time, which makes me really feel like your picks are kind of like inceptioning me into your head even further than this conversation <laughs> did. You know, I kind of want to start with, chronologically just because yeah. the last time that you were here and we were talking about Double Indemnity, you know, we really got into like, you know, this, it was our first example of even doing a, a noir on the show. We have kept Double Indemnity on our API list, but with kind of an asterisk only because we were thinking we haven't gotten to fully explore film noir yet. And do we just want to put the first one that we've really ever seen on the list? And so we've been wondering what might knock Double Indemnity out. And here you come with a film noir called Out of the Past. Look at all the angles. You know Whit and you know how far he can reach. So just pay me off and I'm quiet. But use cash. Don't try to pay me off with pitch handed to you, but that's cheap piece of baggage. I was hoping you'd do this. Okay. Give us your out of the past pitch. Why this movie? Out of the past is uh, the noir movie that I, when I saw that at a noir festival when I was like 16 years old or something, it was one of the first times I saw one of those movies where I didn't find any of it to be corny. Like I really felt the way, I mean, it's beautifully filmed. One of some of the greatest cinematography from that era, actually, uh, you know, the, the sets and the lot and the location shooting is all amazing. Um, Robert Mitchum is narrating a story like in the future about a thing that happened to him. And he's basically telling you about his sort of hard luck, broken heart. And it, it is a story about a private eye who is hired by a gangster to find the woman who shot him and stole like a couple hundred grand and ran off to Acapulco. Robert Mitchum takes this case from uh, Kirk Douglas, who was in his only his second feature role in a film, I believe, um, and goes down and immediately falls in love with Jane Greer, who is the greatest femme fatale of all time, other than maybe the woman from Crisscross. It is just it is the quintessential like broken heart story. Like you really feel the way this guy throws away his whole life, that he falls in love with the woman he's supposed to catch. They go on the run together. They are, they're hiding out in San Francisco. They're going to the tracks and getting seen by people and having to like escape town. Like he spends on, you know, uh, it feels like a year or more like on the, on the run with this woman being lovers. And, you know, and then when they're caught up to, she murders a guy in cold blood that he wouldn't have killed and they break up and he goes and hides out and just becomes another person and starts a new life and, and is, you know, dating this nice girl in this small town. 
And then we get to where the movie began, which is what, where like a gangster who knew him from a long time ago pulls up to this gas station where he works under this fake name. It's a story about like doomed love and mm-hmm. sort of unrequited love. And it does one of the things that I think noir films can do best or noir stories in general that, that they rarely do, which is there is a secret between the viewer and the movie at the end. Like she asks his sidekick, the character, this, this, uh, this deaf kid, if his care, like after all the bad stuff has happened, when they've all come back together and Kirk Douglas has tried to get revenge and Jane Greer has gone crazy. And I don't want to ruin the whole movie for everybody, but there's this deaf kid in the small town and the fiance, the nice girl from the small town that, that Mitchum was, you know, was sort of his redemption girl. She says, did he really ever love me? And the deaf kid shakes his head so that she can go on with her life. And we know he really did and that he's sacrificing himself so that she will be able to move on and have a real life. And this deaf kid somehow knows this, this is the right thing to do. And it's just this beautiful moment of it's heartbreak, but also like a happy ending in a weird way. Very Casablanca-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Very you know? much. Yeah. <sighs> that sounds just gut-wrenching. I haven't gotten to see this yet. Now it's high on my list because oh my God, I realize yeah. that Robert Mitchum is an actor I need to know a lot more oh, about. Yeah. I've only seen a handful and like no, no human being has a face like Robert Mitchum, but Robert yeah. Mitchum. It has the greatest line of, it may have been written by, it, it's, it has uh, ghost rewriting by James M. Cain, who actually wrote Double Indemnity. He's, he's an unlisted screenwriter on the movie. Um, it has the, one of the greatest lines of dialogue of all time, which I believe is like the title of a Mitchum biography, Baby, I Don't Care. When oh, wow. she's, she's basically, right before they kiss for the first time, she's trying to confess to him about things that she's done. And he just he just shakes his head and says, baby, I don't care. And then he kisses her. And it's like, <laughs> if you as a young person. By the person, way, that book is called Baby. Oh, I was going to say, I thought the I thought the book was going to be called Baby, I Do Care. But you're right. It is called Baby, I Don't Care. <laughs> <laughs> baby, I Do Care. <laughs> Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. I mean, speaking of dialogue, I think that brings us really well to our next film, Diner. What is that, roast beef? Don't ask me this anymore, Mo. Yes. You gonna finish that? Yeah, I'm gonna finish it. I paid for it. I'm not gonna give it to you. If you're not gonna finish it, I would eat it. But if you're gonna eat it, you're gonna... What do you want? Say the words. No, go ahead. You're gonna eat it. You eat it. That's all right. Say the words. I want the roast beef sandwich. Say the words and I'll give you a piece. You know, there is a before diner and after diner and diner has like Mm -hmm. really seeped into so much of culture. You could draw lines to Apatow, Seinfeld, this idea of, you know, casual conversation. Tarantino. Tarantino, Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. There's so many places it goes. So talk to me about why this movie holds up for you. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, uh, I think it came out when I was in 10th grade. So I'd have been like 14 and... I was a Navy brat. I moved around every couple of years until I was about eight or nine years old. I, because of this, I don't have, you know, as a child, I didn't have a lot of long-term friendships. I didn't, when I was going to high school, like everybody that I was in high school with had known each other since they were little kids or almost all of them. And they had these relationships that I was an outsider from. So when I watch Diner, it's about these five kids who grew up together and are still best friends 
you know, 10 something years after high school and they're all coming back for the wedding of one of their friends from childhood. And it's just the camaraderie of these people. And every single person in the movie went on to be a, a huge star. Um, you know, Mickey Rourke, uh, Steve Gutenberg. Um, thank you for Kevin, listing him second. Kevin Bacon. Uh, thank you for listing him second. <laughs> but this is very much like, you know, Mickey Rourke, you know, this this idea that there are movies in this time, and maybe I'm lumping them all together, but like The Outsiders and yeah. Diner, that basically launched groups of people. And we talk about this a lot in the show. Like one of the things I think that's so effective in good filmmaking is not having super recognizable people. Cause I think you actually fall in love with them a little bit more and oh, you yeah. start to then, then you want to see them again. But like, there is something really, you can, you can find this group of friends. And I think it's, we saw that with, you know, hangover and bridesmaids and, yeah. you know, and, and super bad, like they're people that you may not, you know, you, they haven't had a chance to really shine. And then all of a sudden you get to, just be like, I, these are my next new favorite people. Yeah. This also had Tim Daly before he was, he went on to be a TV star. But yeah. Not, you, thought, you would have thought coming out of that movie that he was going to be the big movie star out of all of them, but it was Kevin Bacon actually and Mickey Rourke. And, um, and Daniel and Daniel Stern, who yeah. was already big-ish as a side character actor um, because of Breaking Away. Um, so I, I got to meet Daniel Stern at my friend Anders' movie premiere for Game Over Man, and I waited until all the younger people had taken their selfies with him to tell him how much Home Alone meant. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, I just, I know you've been, you know, bombarded here. I just want to say, I know what's on the flip side. And he <laughs> looked at me and he's like, you're a diner guy. And it was just one of the greatest couple of minutes of my life. Like, I was like, yeah, diner breaking away. I'm like, I, I used to, my friend Dave Cloudon and I used to take a VCR and a TV to the Denny's on at uh, Texas and El Cajon in San Diego in 1984. And we would watch diner in the booth at our diner and bring, have people standing around and we would do every single line of dialogue and ruin the movie for everybody else. Like I we were like that, that guy in diner who's doing sweet smell of success. <laughs> but it was I had that a feeling m- this was a movie like that for you. I don't know why I had the vibe, <laughs> but it is what's amazing about it to me is it's a movie too, about men who don't understand women. Uh, because the, I mean, there's that great line after Mickey Rourke meets uh, the woman who's riding a horse and, um, her name is something Chisholm, and she says, like, the Chisholm Trail. And then she rides away, and he looks at, he looks at uh, I think, Kevin Bacon, and he's like, what fucking Chisholm Trail? And then the other one is like, you ever get the feeling there's something going on that we just don't know about? And that's what that whole movie is about. It's about a bunch of guys who grew up just <laughs> being guys. Now, one of them is about to get married. He doesn't even know why he's getting married. And they 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 grew up in this sort of diner culture and they don't understand women at all. It is one of the best like camaraderie (laughs) friendship movies ever made. It 100 percent changed everything that came after it. There would be no Seinfeld. There would be no Reservoir Dogs there. You know, I mean, the list goes on of people who were like, oh, you can do dialogue like that. Like Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser was in that and apparently ad-libbed probably 20% of his dialogue in those scenes. Like him and Gutenberg would just... There's an argument about a roast beef sandwich that apparently the studio argued for them to take out because they're like, it doesn't move the plot forward at all. And Barry Levinson was like, the roast beef sandwich is the entire story. (laughs) 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 Because that says everything about their relationship, about how how they treat each other. (laughs) I have to say two things here. Um, one, I went to college in Oklahoma, which means I did go on two dates with the Chisholm because the Chisholm <laughs> Trail did go near there. And yes, he did say Chisholm like the trail. That is absolutely a thing. <laughs> but it never occurred to me that maybe he was making also a diner joke. Huh, I have to, I have to chew on that for a while. Um, also, this movie, you know, is a little sacred to movie critics because of Pauline Kael. Yeah. You know that Pauline Kael, she has gotten... Picked apart many times on the show for saying crazy things, even though I love her deeply. This is one of the examples where, like, they weren't sure about how this movie was going di- to get distributed, if it was yeah. going to get distributed, if it was going to be any good. Like, they had got cold feet before it came out. Yeah, they didn't want to release it until she said she was going to write a review no matter what. 
Exactly. So, like, one of the producers snuck her a print of the movie, like, while this whole debate was going on. And she told told the studio, like, listen, I'm going to write a glowing review of this movie, whether you release it or not. Kind of put her critical pen to their head. And as a critic, that's one of the things you just dream of. You'll, like, be in a scenario (laughs) where you can make that happen. Like, we're dreaming of that someday. Like, come on, man. Like, let me help. It's, it is, I mean, I still think it's a masterpiece to this day. If it were a genre movie, people would still talk about it a lot more. I think if there, were, if there was a heist in the middle of it or something. Right. Like, mm-hmm. the thing is, it's just a couple, it's like a week in the life of these, of these guys. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's heartwarming. It, it's, it's like the, it's like everything that you love about Mad Men and what Mad Men says about life is in these two hours, basically. Well, and I think that there is something about a movie like this um, where also it's a, the time that you saw it and who your contemporaries are. Mm-hmm. And, it, and because other people have done it in their own style and whatever you've fallen in love with. And for me, that movie was, and I love Diner, but Reservoir Dogs was the movie yeah. that kind of blew my mind, right? And that was like, oh my God, that's my thing. And then, well, you yeah. know, I think there's always an element of, you find that, but without this, this is like this is like this is the uh, the treasure map to lead you to where it was originally started. Yeah. I think that that's oh, like, totally. it's yeah, and it still really does hold up, even though attitudes change and things like that. But there's a nature and there's a there's a a really fun thing. I told you before, uh, Jason Reitman for his directing project one time had the cast of the League do Diner, and it was yeah. really fun for us to go in there because you, I think it was a, a, a very astute observation. Like, oh yeah, you could put any big ensemble together and it'll have like a, a better vibe than just a bunch of strangers. And it it's, was, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a messed up movie in a lot of ways too. Obviously yeah. it's like yeah. Mickey work, make like sticks his dick into a box of popcorn so he can win a bat that a girl yeah. with his dick at the movies. It's like, ugh. <laughs> I know we're going to have to have one of those revenge of the nerds conversations when we, when we do finally get to this, because I think we should, um, because yeah. we actually haven't even done a Barry Levinson film yet on this list. And it's always hard reconciling with yeah. the things that people thought were funny there, but also, but I, I will also say I'll take this over American graffiti any day of the week. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. Right. And I love let's go to, graffiti, but let's but go to yeah. our yeah. third film. Like yeah, we, third film. Like I said, we haven't done a Barry Levinson, but we did this year talk about the director of the next film that you picked. You picked 2046 uh, by Wong Kar Wai, who we have talked about a few months ago in Chungking Express. Twenty forty six is, I think, Wong Kar Wai's best movie. Uh, a lot of people would argue with me that I'm crazy for saying that, especially since it was made right after In the Mood for Love, which most everybody thinks is his best movie. Um, I love In the Mood for Love, and in fact, it would, you know, I would fight these two movies to see. But twenty forty six to me, it captures so much of a feeling of the aftermath of a bad breakup or that the thing that crushed you like it reminds me the most emotionally of how I felt from like age 25 to like age 30 after the I had had like a, a very significant you know that that one really young significant relationship that you have and it had gone and it had ended poorly and I was heartbroken for a good five years and everything that I did in the course of those five years was somehow me trying to recover from all the girls that I dated. Sorry if any of you are listening to this. Were somehow me trying to recover from this huge, enormous heartbreak that, you know, is one of those things that in some ways you never 100% get over. You just kind of one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I don't feel that way anymore. Um, And you can move on with life. And, you know, then I met my wife and I've been married for 21 years now. Um, But I remember vividly that feeling of crushed and nothing matters and just throwing myself into my work. And, you know, you could meet these amazing people, but somehow not be able to really connect with them or, you know, because you just can't connect with yourself. And I feel like that movie is the greatest unrequited love movie that's ever been made. I think it's got the best visuals 
of anything he's ever made. I know it's it's a companion piece to In the Mood for Love. I actually saw them in opposite order, which okay. might be why I like 2046 more. But I think I also like it more because it's more challenging in its structure. Um, it really jumps around in time a lot. It, it feels very literary. It reminds me a lot of something uh, like a Milan Kundera book, like the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, um, mm-hmm. where it feels like a bunch of short stories all about the same character that are intertwining. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to probably mispronounce her name, but Zhang Ji, um, it, it is the best performance of her career ever, I think. And anything that, like any moment that she's on the screen is like burned into your retina. You cannot understand why he is not in love with her. And when she meets him at the end of the movie to ask him for money, and then she gives him all his money back for all the nights they slept together as if somehow it's just, it's so heartbreaking and you feel so crushed for her. And yet as a guy, I completely understood how Tony Lee, I mean, Tony Young is one of the greatest actors of all time. Um, uh, everybody in this movie is, is phenomenal. Gong Lee in her brief appearance is, you know, just this mysterious gambler woman, but every, every moment of this movie that it can just carries the weight of heartbreak and longing and this desire to go back to the past and be able to fix things. And, which carries over from In the Mood for Love, which you know, In the Mood for Love ends with this coda that is translated underneath. Uh, apparently, the original translation was a little bit improper, but the translation underneath is very close to the end lines of The Great Gatsby about this idea of paddling back to the past. He's talking about he's always looking at the past as if it was a dusty window he could break through and somehow get back to. Um, and this movie for me is, a, is a, obviously it's a sequel to that. He wasn't done with that idea yet, but it's also got this weird sci-fi element of the story that he's writing. That's, that is, I guess, uh, more related to, uh, Chinese culture and Hong Kong culture because 20, 2046 was, uh, one year was the last year that Hong Kong would be under self-rule originally, which has turned out to be bullshit. Um, so that's a tragedy in its own. But but there was an extra meaning for, if you knew that, that it was like the idea that this, this sci-fi future was also the last year that Hong Kong would be Hong Kong, too. So it just feels like it, it really carries the these themes in this amazing way. There's some visual stills in that that, you know, I still look at to this day when I'm trying to compose things. I'll look at some imagery, just her smoking a cigarette on the edge of the building. And you're like, I don't know if it was Christopher Doyle or the other cinematographer who shot that part of it, but I know they took four years to make the movie. So there's two different cinematographers, but it is, I think the outside of Darius Kanji, you know, Christopher Doyle is, is my favorite living cinematographer. If he's, I don't know if he's even alive now, um, <laughs> but uh, living or, or zombified, How yeah, living or zombified. Um, but it Actually, is, hearing I think you was, say that, I'm thinking like, my gosh, if you just took all the stills of this film and assembled them, and if it would just feels like a graphic novel because yeah, of, it's, of the structure just being yeah. so wild, you know, the four timelines, it's impossible to even describe. It feels like it feels and like to fiction know that, that you there's could no hold storyboards. on to even better. There's no storyboards. Right, that's there's practically no script. You know, it's it's a it's it's such an artistic expression. Wong Kar Wai, you know, I mean, everything he makes looks amazing and is captivating to me. Um, other than maybe Blueberry Nights, which oh, that was whatever. terrible. That's um, yeah. So, uh, but I mean, this movie to me, I saw it. I couldn't get other people to watch it with me. I didn't care. I watched it like ten times. I still think. When I think about, like, what would be a movie I would show to someone to express what heartbreak feels like, and it would be that movie. I love this. Oh, this is, these are great, great picks. And I feel like they're also picks that I don't know if everyone is incredibly familiar with, with the exception of Diner. Uh, so I, I do most love... people aren't familiar with Diner, though. The younger crop yeah. of filmmakers has not seen it. Like a lot of people I talk to have not seen it. They've seen things and I wonder how it will feel to them. It's like when I, you know, first discovered like Newt Hampson, who was like a big influence on like Hammett and, 
and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all the, and when you start reading them, you're like, oh, this just kind of feels like that stuff. Like yeah. when something's so influential, like I wonder if they would look back at it and just think, oh, this is this movie without a plot. I mean, oh, that's, that's, that's my, that's my conversation we're always having on here. Yeah. It's yeah. my, my diehard thing is like, will diehard ever be as effective as the first time, you know, because so yeah. many movies started to rip off and, and they, we talk about that with Pulp Fiction too. It's like, yeah, there's certain, certain things. The original looks stale because you've seen either people trump it <laughs> or, or you're so bored by it. It's like you forgot the original intent or how, um, how influential it was when it first came out. Yeah. I always used to, used to have this idea that I, I wanted to make a movie that looked like a Wong Kar Wai movie, but was as, but was as uh, plot driven and and sort of story driven as as like an early Chris Nolan movie. Like imagine if oh. Wong Kar Wai had shot Memento. Like oh, how great God. that would have been. That <laughs> feels like a gauntlet that you've just thrown down. I know. And and what a perfect way have... to kind of bring it all back. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have. Uh, it wouldn't have made nearly as much money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed. You are one of my favorite guests we ever have on this. I'm just so oh, glad you. To, that you came back to talk to us about your top three well, of course. and about yeah. everything else that we have talked about today. Well, thank you for having me. This is this is uh, you know I love I love talking movies with you guys. And uh, just so you all know, uh, Reckless is available now. You can order it uh, from your local comic book shop. Uh, that's the best way to do it. Call them up. They'll be excited to have you uh, there. And if you can't find it there, you can find it in your local bookshop. Uh, yeah. You can also find it uh, in any place that you would get a book. I mean, a lot of people recommend like a Powell books and things like that, you know, so there's a, there's plenty of places to get it besides the, the big the big A. Yeah, the uh, which, first, yeah. first two, Reckless and Friend of the Devil, are, are currently out. And uh, on October 20th, Destroy All Monsters, the third uh, Reckless book comes out. Well, Ed, this has been great. Thank you so, so much. And uh, we will see you uh, next time. Thank you. kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 